0: Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 91, The State vs the Theatre, Part 1, Henry, Edward and Mary. Last time, I took you through the frequently changing attitudes to the stage player during the Tudor period. In a period where stage playing could be a hand-to-mouth existence or the route to great wealth, it was always a precarious profession. Indeed, as I pointed out, for many it was never even considered a profession at all and certainly not a reputable way of earning a living. Attitudes towards plays and players were caught up in the religious changes of the times, which also meant that they were caught up in political changes. It was a time when religion and politics were closely intertwined, so we have a considerable amount of evidence about how the state tried to legislate, curtail and censor the stage players, the plays and the theatre in the public record. So in the next couple of episodes I'm going to take you through the key moments of legislation by the state where it concerned theatre. In this episode we'll be in the reigns of Henry VIII, Edward VII and Mary and then next time there'll be a whole episode devoted to the reign of Elizabeth. At the beginning of Henry's reign we are of course back in a time before religious reformation took hold and medieval thoughts and beliefs were still very present. In pre-Reformation England, control of plays was managed by the church, which held sway over their content of the religious plays. They were written by monks, clerics and others close to the church, and they didn't flex their muscles over theological argument. Broadly speaking, they towed the line. Court entertainments were performed under the eye of the Lord Chamberlain, who ensured that rules set out in the House Order books were followed. Plays were rarely printed, and if they were, they came under the same controls that covered book printing. Every book printed was done so with the sovereign's permission. There is very little evidence for direct censorship of books or plays in England, but safe to assume, I think, that there was a lot of self-censorship as part of the creative process. But by the early 16th century, things were changing. Anticlericalism was a growing issue for the Crown, but one that Henry VIII then used to his advantage when he needed to divorce his first wife Catherine of Aragon in 1529 and marry his second in 1533. Henry was also concerned with asserting his supremacy over the Pope and gaining access to the wealth that flowed from English lands direct to Rome. As I've mentioned before, the complexities of his true motivations and the sincerity of his religious beliefs is still debated and not for me to add to here, but the effect from a theatrical point of view was that plays became politicised because religion and politics became intertwined. The cycle play, the morality play and even the saints play could now become a voice for the advancement of the new religion, which Henry would maintain was only a resetting of the old religion in a correct direction. Or equally they could be used in defence of the old religion plays could become overtly polemical in a way that had not been seen since Roman times, where they were used to praise or criticise the movers and shakers of Roman society. Henry had a lot on his mind, and regulation of the theatre doesn't appear to have been particularly high on his list. Up to his death in 1574, regulation of the theatre seems to have been something done more or less at a local level, rather than from the centre, and this led to some very contradictory behaviours across the country. There's evidence of suppression of the theatre in Chester and Salisbury, Ipswich, York and London, and a handful of other places. But then the art gets support from the aristocracy generally, and the Lord Chancellor and the Archbishop of Canterbury in particular. Gradually, there was an awakening in central government to the effect the theatre was having. Fairly late in the day, the King and his Privy Council woke up to the fact that having allowed religion and politics to mix in plays, with the aim of using them to advance their aims. They had opened a dangerous box of tricks that was no longer in their control, if indeed it ever had been. Theatre, they realised, could be used to voice anti government positions and, by extension, stoke rebellion in the country. I shouldn't overemphasise the role of theatre here. The strongest messages on religious matters still came from the pulpit. This being the age when missing a church service was unthinkable for most of the population and the mass was still a mysterious but familiar thing. Changing the content of a cycle play would have been as unthinkable to many as changing the content of the mass or the priest's vestments, but that was exactly what Henry was doing in the later years of his reign. With the progression of the Reformation, what had been arguments between the king, the pope and their statesmen and ambassadors became changes that directly affected the daily lives of ordinary people, and that was a much harder sell. Saints worshipped for centuries were suddenly demoted. Feast days and their associated celebrations removed. Monks turned out and their monasteries destroyed. The mass pronounced in English, not Latin, a move that was by no means universally welcomed. Now, the king and the council needed to control what was expressed as religious opinion among the population to push through the changes that they were making. It's only in this way that theatre was curtailed. Any command in respect of the theatre that came from the centre was only concerned with the nature of the message being promoted and for a potential for a breach of the king's peace that an emotive performance might cause. There doesn't appear to have been any censorship of any other aspect of plays or the theatre. Real changes started early in the 1530s. In 1531, the guild that was running the Corpus Christi plays in Ipswich declared their plays should be laid aside forever. It's not clear if this decision was directly because of the influence of the Reformation or because of the removal of Cardinal Wolsey as Chancellor. He had a college in Ipswich that was suppressed the year before. But the following year, the guild in Chester instigated changes that removed all references to the papal control of their plays. In the announcement of that year's plays, The crossings out for such references can be seen. In 1535, the secretary to the Lord Chancellor wrote a memorandum to the King that suggested that the traditional plays could be used to educate the illiterate masses in the religious reforms. He points out that these plays had been used by the Pope for generations to indoctrinate the population. So, why should the same tool not be turned to the promotion of the new ideas? This is the first evidence that we have of the state realising that controlling theatre could be useful. Just a year later, John Bale was writing plays that attacked the Pope, monks, the purchasing of remission of sins and Catholic dogma in general. Bale, a former Carmelite friar, took up the Reformation with zeal, having renounced his vows, married and become a parish priest. He was almost certainly recruited by Thomas Cromwell, the King's Chancellor, to spread the message of the Reformation, and he may have directly commissioned Bale's plays King John Three Laws God Promises and The Temptations of Our Lord all produced before 1540 which were in this strong anti-papal anti-catholic vein. Bale also organised a travelling troupe to perform the plays and took major roles in them himself. The following year saw the first prosecution of players and promoters of theatre suggesting that the state was attempting to get a firmer grip on what was to be allowed for public entertainment and education. In Salisbury Three ex priests who had turned their hands to playing were executed, and in London there was at least one example of the keeper of a hall being prosecuted for allowing an interlude to be openly played. Although we lack a lot of documentary evidence about specific events, it's safe to assume that there were other prosecutions too. The situation over the freedoms of what could be presented on stage was concerning enough for the bishop's convocation in February 1542 to petition the king for action. The bishops' concerns were addressed as part of the Act for the Advancement of True Religion, which was passed in 1543, less than a year after the Convocation. The Act itself marked a change in the direction of the Reformation. While Thomas Cromwell was Chancellor, the evangelical wing of the reforming movement had the upper hand, with the Conservatives being pushed back from the front line of reform. With Cromwell's fall from grace and execution, the Conservatives were able to take a firmer hand with the King's Council and the king himself began to favour a more Anglo-Catholic than evangelical position. The Act of 1543 reflects this. Its most significant elements were to restrict the reading of the Bible to clerics, noblemen and the upper end of the gentry. Everyone else, including women of any standing, were forbidden from reading it. But it was a very wide-ranging act that claimed the true aims of the Reformation had been subverted. It said, Malicious minds intending to subvert the true exposition of scripture have taken upon them by printed ballads, rhymes, etc. subtly and craftily to instruct his highness's people and specifically the youth of his realm, untruly. For reformation whereof, his majesty considereth it most requisite to purge his realm of all such books, ballads, rhymes and songs, as be pestiferous and noisome but it made an exception for All books printed before the year 1540, Entitled Statutes, Chronicles, Canterbury Tales, Chaucer's Books, Gower's Books, and Stories of Men's Lives shall not be comprehended in the prohibition of this Act. In respect of plays specifically, the Act permitted moral plays to be performed as long as they promoted virtue, condemned vice, and did not contradict the interpretation of the scriptures as set out by the king. If the king hoped that the act for the advancement of true religion would bring clarity and therefore compliance in his lands, then he was to be disappointed. Passing a law is one thing, enforcing it is another, and we have a lot of details about one example in particular of how difficult enforcement could be, and it involved some of the king's closest advisers. On the 16th of January 1545, the fellows of Christ College, part of Cambridge University, decided that they would stage a performance of Pamacchius by Thomas Kirkmeyer as part of their Shrove Tuesday celebrations marking the beginning of Lent. This play was written in Latin in 1538 and was probably presented at Cambridge in a translation by John Bale. Coming from a German Protestant pastor, it is violently anti-Catholic. It denounces the Pope as the Antichrist, an extreme position that Henry never endorsed, merely regarding the Pope as the Bishop of Rome with no more power than any other bishop, and it criticised several aspects of religion recently endorsed by the True Religion Act, such as the value of fasting during Lent and celebrating the Mass. Cambridge was something of a hotbed for reform at the time, so it's easy to understand why the fellows liked the look of this play. The Chancellor of the University was Stephen Gardner privy councillor and bishop of Westminster and a significant force in the promotion of the recent act and the pulling back of some of the reforms of recent years. Had he been a resident chancellor at the university he might have stamped out the production before it was staged but he was a London resident and heavily involved with the life of Henry's court so the play went ahead unchecked. In fact, this was exactly the time when Gardner was engaged with the Catholic powers in Europe to try to find some common ground over religion and to build some much-needed alliances. The affair over the play came at a very tricky time for him. Gardner only came to learn of the performance when the events were reported to him by one Cuthbert Scott, a junior fellow at the college a few days later. Scott was outraged, and his complaint was supported when a concerned resident of Cambridge also reported the play to Gardiner. The bishop must have had some sense of conflict between his role as Chancellor of the University and as a Privy Councillor who had to support the contents of the recently passed Act of Parliament. We have the story so well documented because Gardiner exchanges a series of letters about the matter with the Vice Chancellor of the University, Matthew Parker, and these are preserved in the public record. Gardiner attempts to keep things low-key at first, perhaps hoping that his informants had been exaggerating. He wrote to Parker on the 27th of March with a very gentle inquiry. Master Vice-Chancellor, he began, I have been informed that the youth in Christ's College, contrary to the mind of the Master and the President, has of late played a tragedy called Pamacchius, a part of which tragedy is so pestiferous as were intolerable. I will give no credit to this information, but as I shall hear from you, wherein I pray you and I may shortly know by you the truth. If it be not so, I will be glad, and if it be so, I intend further to travail, as is my duty, full reformation of it. The Vice-Chancellor replied a few days later, saying that he had indeed investigated further and confirmed that the play did contain slanderous and suspicious sentences but that the fellows had wisely agreed to omit all such matter whereby offence might justly have risen. But it seems that Gardiner was unconvinced by these assurances and dispatched a cleric on his staff to Cambridge to oversee a much more thorough investigation. In his letter, he goes so far as to list specific points of the act that he believes may have been breached. When the Vice-Chancellor received this missive, he must have realised that he was now dealing with an adversarial privy councillor, not a friend supporting the university. The letter ends with a not-so-coded reference to the need for universities to follow the laws of the land and the King's will, lest they suffer the same fate as the monasteries. Parker got the message and called a meeting of his fellows and heads of college to dig deeper into the matter. But the meeting went nowhere, as so many of the required attendees and I quote, whether on purpose or of chance, were absent. Only two complaints could be found from those who did turn up, and one of those was Cuthbert Scott, who had made the original complaint. Undeterred, Parker then sought out the actors who had performed in the play and acquired sworn depositions from them, which admitted to the play being, all throughout poison. Parker sent the depositions to Gardner with the prompt book for the play that he had also acquired. Gardner appears to have been convinced of the wrongdoing at this point. In his reply, saying that the prompt book confirmed an abundant proof of lewdness, and in the same letter, wondering how it is that nobody in authority at the university didn't come to take action against those concerned with the production. Gardner, as he was bound to do, then took the matter to the Privy Council. From where, four days later, a letter was issued to the Vice-Chancellor, calling him to look to his fellows and heads of college, and admonish them to endeavour themselves so to employ their wits and their studies in knowledge that is good, true, and wholesome, as all that is indeed poison, either in learning or in manners, be expelled and put out. And no such matter, either in play or earnest, to be moved or meddled with as should offend the laws and the quiet of this realm. So as you that be there assembled and under the king's majesty special protection be maintained to live quietly for the increase of virtue and learning, do also in your manner and behaviour practice rest and quietness, and exclude all occasions that might impeach the same. Actually, by Privy Council standards, quite a gentle telling off when you consider that the council was dominated by conservatives at the time. It's thought that the council took the view that the play had not led to any serious unrest at the university or in the town and that it was best to move on as swiftly as possible. It's assumed that Gardner fought the university's corner in council and successfully deflected any attempts for more serious censure. But he then closed off the matter with one further letter to Parker. He said, The event itself shows that all proper defence has died amongst you. Your own men divide your own affairs in your own precincts. And he continues in a similarly severe tone for several pages. The letter was written in Latin, and that would have left Parker in no doubt that this was an official communication from the court and that he had better watch himself in future. In London, there are indications that this was a time that there was a proliferation of playing and that new laws were being tested. The declaration by the alderman of the Guildhall there in 1545 banned performances of all contentious plays and interludes. Presumably, the ban was issued as a reaction to an increasing number of productions that were considered of dubious content. Two years before this, a similar decree had been issued banning posters advertising unauthorised plays and tightening the rules around what would be authorised. A further decree was issued two years later with almost identical wording suggesting that the original order was being worked around or ignored. It seems that it wasn't only the fellows at Cambridge University who were willing to test the limits of what was permitted. Surprisingly, both orders specifically mentioned banning of all plays on Sunday. It would have been reasonable to assume that there were no performances on Sundays when all the population should have been in church, but it was the only day of the week that was a holiday for most workers, tradesmen, apprentices and labourers and the commercial players would have been keen to perform on a day that would gather the biggest audience. It was a tussle that was to continue for the ensuing century. The King liked the look of the way London was trying to control the theatre, and in March 1547 he appointed a Master of Games, Revels and Masks, with the aim of bringing state control to all theatrical activity in England. As things turned out, It was never that simple and there continued to be a fight between the state, the church and the city of London for control of the regulation of theatre for the duration of the Tudor period. When Henry died in 1547, his son Edward inherited the crown. The problem was that Edward was only nine years old a regency council was established under the leadership of the Duke of Somerset, who, as the old king's death approached, had thoughtfully taken the boy heir into his care. He soon persuaded the council to honour him with the title Lord Protector. Somerset was from the evangelical wing of the Reformation, and used his position to pass more extreme laws through Parliament than Henry in his later years would have countenanced. As a result, a stream of evangelicals who had fled the country returned. Henry's Act for the Advancement of the True Religion was repealed, many saints' days were deleted from the calendar, and this is the point at which the Corpus Christi feast day, the day around which the old cycle play celebrations were focused, was abolished. In 1549, the use of the Liturgy of the Mass in English became mandatory. The theatre got caught up in these reforms, but changes here were very much part of the wider religious changes, rather than being a reaction to specifically theatrical concerns the Charities Act dissolved the charitable guilds. Without their guidance and care and, indeed, their charitable need, the centuries-old tradition of the cycle plays was forced to come to an end, although not without some unrest as a direct result. The Act for the Uniformity of Service and Administration of the Sacraments was passed through Parliament in 1549. It sought to enforce the use of the English Bible and the Book of Common Prayer. It included a reference to the expected behaviour of stage players and other entertainments. The relevant passage of the Act reads, And it is ordained and enacted by the authority above said, that any person or persons whatsoever after the said feast of Pentecost next coming, shall in any interludes, plays, songs, rhymes, or by other open words, declare or speak anything to the derogation, depraving, or despising of the same book, or of anything therein contained, or any part thereof. And then, the following fines are listed. £10 for the first offence, for the second and the threat of the removal of goods, and the rest of your life in prison for the third. Even without this last threat, the fines themselves were severe and clearly pitched to give a strong deterrent. Two months later, in August 1549, a proclamation was issued banning all theatrical performances from the 9th of August until the following All Saints' Day on November 1st. Although issued in the King's name, the proclamation was drafted and passed through the Privy Council by Suffolk and the Conservatives. Its stated aim was to prevent any discord in the realm that might be caused by the proliferation of common players, who, the Act said, do for the most part play such interludes as contain matter tending to sedition and condemning of sundry good orders and laws, whereupon are grown, and daily are like to grow and ensue, much disquiet, division, tumults and uproars in this realm. Eighteen months later, the council felt it necessary to issue a second proclamation on the subject, from which we can infer that the original proclamation was being ignored or worked around to some degree. The majority of the second degree was a general appeal to the populace to live in harmony with their neighbours and keep to the enacted religious observances. But it ends with some strong words for the players and those who frequent the theatre. It specifically calls on plays and players not to create tales touching on the king, his council or his court. It also calls on all booksellers and printers of plays not to issue anything that might cause disquiet in the kingdom, on pain of a fine and imprisonment without bail. Any questionable printed plays had to be reviewed by six Privy Council members and authorised by their seals and signatures. The performances of plays is also mentioned. Plays in English were not to be performed without the permission of the King, which again had to be obtained through the approval of six Privy Councillors. This is the start of preemptive censorship in the English theatre, something that would continue in various more or less severe forms until 1968. But back in 1551, the Privy Council hadn't done with players yet. In June that year, the Privy Council wrote to the Marquess of Dorset, instructing him that the players he maintained were licensed only to perform in his home and were not, from then on, permitted to travel through the country. Having introduced the censorship of plays, both on stage and in printed form, a practical solution to enforce the rules had to be devised. Realistically, the Privy Council and the King didn't have time or the inclination to be reading plays themselves, with the inevitable back and forth over proposed cuts and the like. Through 1552, the Council mulled over the issues of who was best placed and trustworthy enough to take on this role. They sought advice, and received some from the leading Protestant thinkers, whose best suggestion was that a committee of some sort was required – and it would have to be made up of men with an outstanding knowledge of this type of literature and the teaching of the English church. But the matter remained unresolved, as the king became ill in February 1553, and everybody's focus turned to the succession. Although the king lingered until June that year, he was seriously ill for months, and then, with his death, everything changed. The legitimate heir was Edward's half-sister Mary, Henry's daughter by Catherine of Aragon but she was a Catholic, and the Protestant Duke of Northumberland had persuaded the dying king to exclude her from the succession, a legal change that meant that Henry's other daughter Elizabeth was also excluded. This placed Northumberland's daughter-in-law, Lady Jane Grey, great-granddaughter of Edward VII, as first in line to the throne. Her tenure lasted only 12 days, her fate being sealed once the Privy Council switched their allegiance to Mary. Lady Jane was executed for treason in February 1554 along with her key supporters and the real powers behind what was in all but name a political coup d'etat. Mary was well known to have maintained her Catholic faith and the Privy Council were inclined to reverse much of Edward's religious legislation, short of recognising the supremacy of the Pope and restoring the monasteries. Mary's initial proclamations were more concerned with keeping the peace than restoring Catholicism, but that didn't last long. A hint of what was to come was seen in the 1553 proclamation, which opens with words of toleration and forgiveness, but then singles out those who interpret the word of God after their own brain. It said, and also by playing of interludes and printing false-found books, ballads, rhymes and other lewd treatises in the English tongue concerning doctrine in matters now in question and controversy, touching the high points and mysteries of the Christian religion, which books, ballads, rhymes and treatises are chiefly by the printers and stationers set out for the sale of Her Grace's subjects, of an evil zeal for lucre and covetousness of vile gain. Now, these are actually tighter rules than those issued by Edward. The reference to printers and stationers doesn't just mean printers and sellers of the written word in general, but the printers and stationers' company in particular. As all printed plays and manuscript prompt books to be used in public performance were controlled by the printers and stationers' company, the inclusion meant that now the Crown had the right to review and therefore censor any plays or prompt books to be used in public before they were published or approved for use. The next couple of years were eventful at court, to say the least. The Queen, from her own volition or at the behest of her council, sought the hand of Philip II of Spain and they were married in July 1554, despite the union causing considerable unrest amongst the Protestant community across the country. The concern was not so much for the fear of the country becoming an outpost of Spain. Parliament had steadfastly refused to alter the rules for the succession but as a lingering anger at the Spanish treatment of Protestants in the Spanish Netherlands. However, there is no hint that theatre played a part in this unrest until 1555. By then, Mary's veneer of toleration had gone, and the burning of heretics had begun. Any writer of Protestant propaganda for the stage would have had a death wish to have work performed at this time. In fact, there is only one play of anti-Protestant sentiment that survives from this period, implying that political religious plays were just too dangerous to handle, whatever their viewpoint. That was an interlude called Respublica, and performed at court in Christmas 1553 by a troupe of boy actors. The play is credited by some to Nicholas Udall, a playwright we will come across again later in the season. This piece is a morality play, telling of the fall and then the restoration of Lady Respublica, who during her journey is challenged by personifications of avarice, insolence, oppression and adulation. In 1555, to the end of Mary's reign in 1558, players and playwrights were likely to get caught up in the general religious repression if they stepped out of line publicly in fifteen fifty five there is a letter from the Privy Council ordering Lord Rich, the Lord Lieutenant of Essex, to ban a play scheduled to be performed just before Lent. The letter said, "His Lordship is willed to stay the same and to examine who should be the players, what effect the play is, what such other circumstances as he thinks meet, and to signify the same hither A week later, the Council sent Lord Rich another letter thanking him for putting a stop to the playing. Although it notes that Lord Rich found the players to be honest householders and quiet persons, and that he had released them from any charge, they emphasize his duty to have a special lookout for similar activities in the future. In May 1556 there was a general order issued against players and pipers strolling through the kingdom, dissembling seditions and heresies. And again, it seems fair to assume this order was issued because there was a perceived problem with players doing exactly that. We know for sure that it was breached in 1557 when the Privy Council were made aware of a troop in the service of Sir Francis Leake. They had been touring a play in Yorkshire that was reported to be seditious, probably relating to the matter of Mary's marriage to Philip. The council sent a letter of the utmost urgency to the Lord President of the North, requiring the arrest of the players. There was a similar message sent out about other troops in London, Kent and Essex so despite the evidence of the official proclamations it seems likely that locally and quietly religious political theatre was still present and the government was very concerned about the potential for theatre to stir up the people. In 1558 Mary thought she was pregnant but no baby arrived and by May she was weak and ill, probably suffering from ovarian cysts or cancer. Accepting that she would never produce an heir, she recognised her half-sister Elizabeth. She died that November, probably finally taken off by the influenza epidemic that ran through London that winter. Because of the glories of the Elizabethan stage, it's easy to forget about the influence of the theatre in the preceding decades. But as I hope I've shown here, the state was periodically very concerned with the activities of players and the influence that they might have, Over a population that was still largely illiterate, but were well versed in interpreting messages and ideas conveyed from the stage. Henry, Edward, and Mary may have had little direct interest in the theatre, but they and their advisors remained troubled by it at a time when they were trying to enforce fundamental changes on the society they ruled. As I've said before, it was a time when what you thought and what you believed could get you fined, beaten, imprisoned, or killed, or all of the above. It is something brought home despite the passage of time when you read a contemporary diary entry, 22nd December 1557, that reports the burning of two people at Smithfield in London a woman burned for heresy and Sir John Ruff for acting the part of a friar in a historical but apparently seditious play. Inevitably, stage playing struggled given the risks involved. Next time, We continue the story of the state versus the theatre with the reign of Elizabeth, which is, of course, the golden age of Tudor theatre, but still a period where the state remained concerned about the power of the stage. In the meantime, please join the Facebook page or group, or find us on Instagram or Twitter to keep up to date with the podcast and other theatre-related stuff. If you'd like to help support the podcast there are additional episodes available on Patreon which you can access for a small monthly fee. They cover a range of theatre history related subjects from all the periods that the main podcast has covered and a few more recent subjects too. I'm currently working on several episodes which will directly support the details that you're hearing in these episodes on the early Tudor theatre. If you're interested in any of these, but can't stretch to a monthly commitment, I can offer a bespoke feed of specific episodes for a one-off payment. You can find details of this on the podcast website at www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com. Once there, just follow the links to Patreon episodes from the main menu, where you'll find a list and a short description of all the available episodes. Thanks again to everyone who's already supports the podcast, and to all of you for listening. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at t-h-o-e-t-p at gmail.com or via Twitter at t-h-o-e-t-p.